Okay, this morning is Sunday, September 11th. Wow, I didn't even realize that. Yeah, I didn't even realize that. This morning, our topic is going to be Moabite gleanings. Moabite gleanings. So if you're taking notes, that's what you want to write down. You can turn with me to the book of Ruth, because that's where we're going to start. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Ruth is a book that takes place immediately after, not after, during the time period of the Judges. So when you're trying to set it in its historical setting, this is after the death of Moses, uh, sometime between Joshua and Samuel. Sometime between 1600 B.C. and 1000 B.C. Y'all with me? We're going to start in uh, Ruth chapter 1. Now, it's obvious our title, Moabite Gleanings, comes from the book of Ruth. And it doesn't, doesn't take a great stretch of the imagination to understand why I might be teaching out of the book of Ruth. Last week, we covered the topic of Joseph's storehouse. A worldwide famine, but God had appointed one of His saints who had become Zaphonoth Paneah, the Savior of the world, to store up good things during the years of plenty so that when the famine came, the people would be provided for during the hard years. Christians are just like that. We are storing up now during these years of our goodness, of God's goodness to us, so that during lean times, you're able to share with others. This morning in the book of Ruth, from the topic of Moabite gleanings, one of the things that I want you to think about, we have disaster on our news every day. Pictures of broken lives, horrifying death. Not very often you'll turn on the news and see reporters standing on Interstate 10 and there'll be dead bodies around them. And despair can set in if you're not careful. The book of Ruth is a story of death, famine, and despair. But it doesn't end there. It is totally overcome by hope, faithfulness, and redemption. And so that's why I wanted to look at it this morning. You can learn from the book of Ruth exactly what our response is to this disaster. Just like you can from Joseph's storehouse. So that's some of the things that we're going to cover this morning. Does that sound like a plan for you? Amen. In Ruth 1, verse 1, it says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Emelech, his wife's name, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilian. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Before we get too much further in this, you're going to see something negative happen to these people. We have Imelech, we have Kilian, and Mechlon. And they have all immigrated from the land of Israel, Eretz Yisrael, to the land of Moab. Does anybody know where the Moabites come from? These are descendants of Lot by way of an incestuous relationship with his daughter. That's not a proud heritage, is it? Moab means from my father. Because of that, 
One of the first things when we read these next tragic verses that people do, one of the first things people always do when there's disaster is look for a reason to blame it on. Watch this. Read these next few verses. Now, Imelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women. One named Orpha. By the way, that's who Oprah Winfrey's named for. Her mama misspelled it. And the other, Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Mahlon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When tragedy strikes, don't people look for a reason why? Why, oh God, did this happen? Have you not already heard about New Orleans? That it's... I've heard Republicans say it's because they've been under democratic control. I've heard Christians say that it's because of the gay and lesbian community there. I've heard other conservative Christians say that it's because of all of the other debauchery that is there and the corruption. Somebody that I love dearly even wrote me something that is profound and is true, but it's not necessarily the reason for the disaster. They said, the city called Sin City is no more. We struggle for a reason to find out why bad things happen. The book of Job is written on the same topic, and Job had a plethora of advisors. They come and they said, well, problems with you, Job. (laughs) Something bad happened to you. It's your fault. And the reasoning was sound. The reasoning was God's a good God. Problem can't be with him, must be with you. The whole point of the book of Job is God has a right to bring into your life whatever he would like to bring into your life to bring him glory. And our response to it needs to always be faithfulness. And that if we do that, you're always restored more than you lost. When we came into Christ, we gave up our right to choose what would happen in our life. When we came into Christ, we surrendered our very will to him and said, Do with me as you would. The prayer that Jesus prayed that was probably most powerful as an example to you is, Father, if it's possible, could you pass this cup for me? But if not, your will be done. You don't have to like everything that happens in your life, but you do have to pray that God's will be done. So people read the book of Ruth and they go, Wow, Israel. Israel's the land of God's provision. And there was a famine there. And the people left. Wow, Naomi's husband left and he died. Well, he must have died because he left the land of Israel. He's doing something disobedient to what God said. Isn't that a natural conclusion you could come to? Then you move on and say, and look, and the two boys died. That's because they took Moabite wives. Always looking for a reason to accuse. There's a problem with that kind of thinking though. There's not anybody who's ever read the book of Ruth, not anybody who's watched the news that's going on in New Orleans or the tsunami or anywhere else that has charged someone else with guilt and thus justified the disaster, there's not anybody who's ever done that who is not guilty themselves. See, if we look at this and go, oh, well, they died and that devastation, that disaster came upon them because of their great guilt. What does that mean about you? What are you guilty of? What hides in your closet? Say, nothing. I'm born again in Christ. You're telling me that since you've been born again, there's not been things that you were ashamed of in your life? See, when you get God's perspective on this, righteousness is credited, never earned. Then you're in a position to offer mercy. Let's just suppose for a minute that God's judgment was poured out on New Orleans for whatever reason. 
Okay, and I'm glad I'm not a famous TV preacher. You say that even on the news, they'll excerpt that little piece and that'll run all of the headlines. But let's just suppose that it was. What does that mean? It means I need mercy. Nineveh was a city that Jonah was sent to preach to. They had a pile of skulls at their city gate that went 150 feet into the air. And God cared about them. He didn't want to destroy them. He even cared about the livestock, the book of Jonah says. So get out of your mind that disaster happens because people are bad people. If that was the case, the whole world would need to be destroyed again. And every time you see a rainbow, it's promised it won't happen. Each individual will work out in their own heart what their response to this is, whether it was judgment or just a natural course of events that God's going to use to benefit you. You know, we say that God judged Egypt and brought Israel out, right? It's pretty true. The Bible says that. Isn't it interesting, though, that there were Israelites and Egyptians in the same town? One saw it as judgment, another saw it as deliverance. Same thing. Two people will sit and listen to this message, and one will hear it and hear the words of life, and another will hear condemnation. How is that? God uses events like this to to push you off of a side of offense. Perhaps just to rearrange you. See, a famine pushed Ruth, well, we're going to find out Ruth, pushed Naomi, Imelech, Mahlon, and Killian out of one country and into another. And what looks like sin at first, to the casual glance, turns out to be a beautiful blessing. Paul picks up on this in Romans 6. He says, so what, do we sin so that grace amounts? By no means, we died to it. I'm not telling you that you screw it up on purpose so that God can fix it up better than you could mess it up. I'm just telling you that God has a way of directing our footsteps. A good message on the web, you should listen to along this line, is Kings and Pawns. Kings and Pawns teaches about that. As Christians, we always will have the opportunity to speculate why a disaster happens. Did this happen because they left the land of Israel? Did this happen because of the French Quarter? Did this happen because of whatever? But that's not what's really important. The point is we're all guilty and we're in need of credited righteousness. That's what should be resounding in our minds. Now think about this poor woman, Naomi. We've titled this book Ruth, right? The book of Ruth. Ruth hadn't been mentioned yet. Naomi has. Naomi's there from the beginning of the book all the way to the end. The beautiful blessing in the story is obviously Ruth. But if you don't focus on Naomi's life, you've missed something. The Word says in the fourth verse that they had lived there for about ten years. I want you for a minute to not think about this as a story far, far away in a galaxy long, long ago. Okay? Don't think about this somewhere in some fantasy land. This is a real story that happened to real people. Could be any of the two sitting next to you. For ten years, this woman was uprooted from her country. Speaking of Naomi. That would be hard in itself. People moving from New Orleans to here that I'm encountering are having a hard time adjusting from her country uprooted. Her husband died. Then one son dies. Then a second son dies. Now, she's a widow in a foreign land, get this, 
that is not in covenant with God. All the protections of a church and of a Jewish community and all of those things are not there. You think she might feel alone? Devastated? Put your finger on verse 16. We're going to pick up there. What happens is Naomi looks at her two daughters and says, I don't have anything left. I have nothing to offer you. It's not like I'm going to get married tonight and have sons for you. i got nothing left. You might as well go home. Here's Ruth's response. I'm sorry, I should have read you verse 6. Uh, verse 6 says, When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of His people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters prepared for, to return home from there. This horrible devastation for ten years and she gets the report God's providing for His people. What an important report to get, huh? That provides a little hope. She decides she's going to return home. One of the two daughters bails out. And now here's Ruth's response in verse... At this they wept again. Then Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be My people and your God, My God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you from Me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. In the midst of this death, destruction, and devastation, a report comes. Naomi has lost everything everything, even one of the two daughter-in-laws. And in the midst of all of this disaster around her, when she could have been overcome by despair, she hears a report, the Lord's providing for His people. What what Christians do you think ought to be a response when you hear devastation and despair is coming upon an entire community of people? This is a chance for us who are supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus on the earth to provide for the Lord's people. And then people will hear about it and there'll be hope. In fact, even the secular news media is starting to pick up on this. All of the stories of tragedy, you hear about rape and looting and murder and flood and devastation. It's doom and gloom. And they're starting to sprinkle in the hundreds of thousands of stories of human generosity and kindness. The things that are done selflessly. So, well, Eric, you're just looking for the silver lining in the cloud. I'm looking for what God is looking for. Watch this. Turn with me to Psalm 33, but stay in Ruth. Psalm 33, verse 13, says this, From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From His dwelling place He watches all who live on the earth. He who forms the hearts of all and considers everything they do. God is looking down upon all of mankind, looking to see what they do. There was travesty and devastation in Naomi's life. Three 
men in her life died, one daughter-in-law goes back to her gods. But Ruth says something that is so beautiful. And this is weird. It's one woman spoken to another. And you know, the words are so poetic and so beautiful. Where do you all recognize those words from? These. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. My God, your God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Where do you hear those words? That's repeated in almost every wedding that you've ever been to. You may not recognize it for that, but the whole idea of until death do us part, you won't find that in a wedding ceremony. Not anywhere in the Word. That's a quote from the book of Ruth. It was one woman telling another an expression of faithfulness. An expression that said, you may have lost everything, sweetheart, but I'm willing to give up my family. You know, she had a family too. I'm willing to give up everything in a display of loyalty to you. Your God will be my God. I'll live where you live. I will help take care of you. Now, I suspect this because Naomi had taken care of Ruth at some point in her life. Welcomed her into a family. A Jewish family. Taught her about God. And now, there is a faithfulness that has risen in Ruth's heart. She wants to show faithfulness and loyalty and trust for Naomi. Naomi tries to discourage her. Naomi says, oh, look, I've got nothing to give you. You need to go back. When she can't discourage her, she allows her to come. The Word teaches us that God is watching all of mankind from the heavens above looking for this reaction. Jeremiah speaks about it in this way. He says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth looking for those whose hearts are committed to Him that He might strengthen them. You know what? You don't realize you need strengthening from the Lord unless there's trouble in your life. If this was just a big bless me party, you're all fat, rich, happy, you would lean on your own arm. The same Scripture that says God is watching says there's never been an army saved by the size of its chariots or its army. These things happen so that there's a dividing line in history. People of faith and people not of faith. You say, but wait a minute, Eric, how can you say that? People of faith, homes were destroyed. People of faith, people who were righteous, suffered horribly in that. When you signed up as a Christian, you signed up for whatever comes your way that God might be glorified. Because what you find out is, if you're not in the famine with the lost, they don't get to see your reaction to the famine. See, we have the idea in this modern church largely because of a famous author that has written many books that are sold at Walmart and are total, complete trash. That the Christians are not not supposed to endure anything hard. We're all just flying away while all of the chosen people, Israel, and the rest of the world suffer. The Bible teaches us that the church grows in the midst of persecution. The Christians are at their very finest hour in difficult times. When the jar of clay that is our body begins to crack under pressure, people see what is in it. Well, this is the position that Naomi and Ruth find themselves in. Ruth's remarkable faithfulness And loyalty in the face of disaster was something that the God of Israel would bless. He saw something in her that He could bless. You know, faithfulness of any kind is a sign of hope. Let Bobby be in a difficult position. Let him be in a a really hard position. 
and nothing to do with Christianity, nothing to do with anything, but somebody come befriend him in that difficult position, and whatever it is becomes easier. That loyalty, that friendship makes everything easier. And this is a gift from God. It is a gift from God. You know why? Because Naomi's teetering on the edge. Let me read you this. Verse uh, 20. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. Naomi means pleasant or sweet. Mara means bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Have you never heard a Christian response to that? Some Christians are so quick to judge, so quick to condemn. Well, yeah, your life's empty and it's bitter because you walked away from the Lord. You left Bethlehem, the house of bread, the place of God's provision. You left Israel, the prince with God, to go to the people of incest. Of course your life's bad. You should repent. I knew a guy that was in the middle of a divorce, heart-rending, breaking. Christian that I knew responded to him, well, you shouldn't have married a Canaanite woman. My God! Which one of us has not run from the house of God into somewhere we shouldn't be? Which one of us has not found ourselves in a position that we shouldn't be in? How dare us do that? How dare us judge as if we've never gotten it wrong? The reality is we get it wrong more than right. But nevertheless, God. When devastation comes, Your reaction is so important. The devastation left Naomi empty and with the potential to be filled with bitterness. Emptiness is powerful. Something will always rush in to fill that void. You remember the principle of in hakor? There's another message you could listen to on the web. In hakor says that when something is empty, something is hollow, because it's been poured out for God, then God will refill it. This is what Samson cried out. It's the place where he cried out in Judges. He had just struck down a thousand men with the jawbone of an ass and said, now must I die of thirst. He was empty because he had poured out himself in the service of others. And God filled him and his strength returned. Well, devastation can leave you empty. The service to your God can also leave you empty. A lot of things can happen in your life to make you feel empty and hollow and like you have nothing left to give. What you fill it with is important and it might determine the rest of your life. In fact, God will let you get to a place of emptiness. Is not one of the most famous stories in the Bible the prodigal son? Who's heard of the prodigal son in here? They don't react to me this morning. I'm going to cry and run out. Devastated. <laughs> The prodigal son. Now tell me something. The prodigal son took his father's inheritance, right? Yes. <laughs> I was laughing. I just remembered a time my brother and I stole my father's Corvette. But that's probably not something we should teach about this morning. He took his father's inheritance. And he went off and he spent it on wild, riotous living. 
During that time, do you think he was reflecting greatly upon his godly upbringing? Probably not. Do you think he had a longing and affection for his father during that time? No, he was doling it with everything. He was doling it with everything. When and at what point did the prodigal begin to start to think about the goodness of his father? At what point was it? I'll tell you when it was. It's when his stomach was so empty that he thought about filling it with the pods that the pigs were eating. See, this emptiness that occurs in our life is a turning point. It's a strategic inflection point. When you get to the place where you are empty, you can be filled with God or you can be filled with wickedness. You can look at the fruit of people's life and see which they've chosen. Fresh water or salt. Why is it that two people go through World War II and one's bitter all the rest of his life and the other has got good things coming out of him and has raised a family full of good things? Why? Well, their experiences were different. Now they're in the same platoon. So what is it? The emptiness caused by devastation has to be filled by something. The question is, what will you fill it with? Read this with me. Keep your finger in Ruth. Said, well, some people experience that, but not me. Look at 1 Peter. The easiest way to get to 1 Peter is to turn to the book of Revelation and then start to work your way left. 1 Peter 1... If you happen to be in the Thompson chain, we're on page 1347. 1 Peter 1, verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You have been redeemed from your empty way of life. Now why? Why does Ephesians 2 tell us that you were redeemed from your empty way of life? What for? What purpose? Just so that you would be blessed? Did God save you just so that you would be blessed? See, because that's all you hear. Today, when you turn on a TV, the most popular preachers in the world are preaching about one thing, how you can be more happy. That's the furthest thing from a Christian's mind. A Christian's mind is how to make someone else happy. How to do good for someone else. Christians ought not be preoccupied with self-improvement. They ought to be preoccupied with how to build into someone else. And then you know what? You get taken care of in the process. Seek first the kingdom of God. Then everything will be added to you. Well, what is the kingdom of God? See, we think that's just, oh, well, I'll pray first. You know? I'll think about spiritual things first and then all the natural things. The kingdom of God, friends, the nuts and bolts of the kingdom of God, according to James, is a religion that puts its faith into action by meeting the needs of other people. They ought not have to ask for volunteers in soup kitchens. They ought not have to ask for volunteers for any kind humanitarian work. The churches ought to already be doing it. In an ideal Christian environment, and there is no such thing, I just want to tell you that, But if there was such a thing as a truly Christian nation, because that's not us, and I'm not not denigrating the United States, but we're a representative democracy full of all kinds of religions. We are not a Christian nation, even though Christianity is very prevalent here. Were we a Christian nation ruled like a theocracy rather than a democracy, there would be no need for welfare. 
There would be no need for social assistance from any government because the church would be doing that. The early church did. They had all things in common. Nobody was without. Israel did that. God fed them with manna from heaven. Those that gathered little didn't have too little. Those that gathered much didn't have too much. There was an equality in the early church. Now, when governments have tried to do this and remove God, what we had was communism. And it was horrible. Do you know why it was horrible? Those responsible for delegating things became corrupt. Those responsible for receiving things became lazy. The worst in human nature came out in communism. I don't want to teach about politics today. I don't even know that much about it. But what I'm trying to say is devastation and hardship cause an emptiness in us. That emptiness, that void, is like a vacuum. Something will rush to fill it. In Naomi's life, there's the fighting for bitterness to fill in. Look at Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Imelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor in. What on earth is that principle? Keep your finger here. Let me turn to Leviticus 19. Genesis Exodus, and then Leviticus. In Leviticus 19, I bet you've heard most of your life that the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Tanakh, is cruel, vengeful. But the God of the New Testament is a God of grace and a God of love. Is that not a popular theme among preachers? Sure it is. We live in the dispensation of grace. We live in the church age, and thank God we do. And we don't know how those old Jews made it under their system of legalistic righteousness, but now that's defunct. That's the predominant preaching, teaching, and thinking in the United States. Why do you think God put this in His Torah, His law? One of His mitzvahs, one of His commands is as follows. Leviticus 19, verse 9. When you reap... By the way, this is Leviticus and Deuteronomy. They form the constitution of Israel. Do you understand what I'm saying when I say constitution? I'm not talking about a religious book that is just a good collection of sayings. I'm talking about form their structured government, enforceable by the state of Israel. God, in that constitution, said the following, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. So, well, Eric, that's neat, but you know, I don't know where you're going with that. Well, then turn with me to Deuteronomy because this phrase occurs over and over and over. The alien, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan. Y'all in Deuteronomy? Turn there. Turn and you'll be going to the right. In Deuteronomy... 24. Hear this. Deuteronomy 24, verse 19. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, for the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. 
When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the alien, for the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. God's people from the very beginning were always to be reminded that they were objects of mercy. Yes, they were chosen. Yes, they were considered princes with God. Yes, they were a special, unique, peculiar people who were said to be righteous because of their relationship with God. But they were never to forget how they got that way. Somebody showed them kindness, showed them mercy, showed them love. So even when they are now in the time period of the judges, hundreds of years after this is written, the people when they're gleaning or when they're harvesting don't go over the fields a second time. You know what that means? That means they're losing productivity. They're losing percentages of their crops. And who's to say a foreigner will come by and get it? Who's to say anybody will see it? Have you ever been prompted as a Christian to leave money for somebody and then walk away wondering, what if they never find it? God didn't tell you to make sure they found it. He told you to leave it. I one time was doing laundry. Now you know that was a miracle. Okay? My wife has sincerely been of the opinion for 12, 15 years now that I didn't know how to do that. (laughs) But one time I was in very desperate straits and I went to pour out of a gain box. Now, I don't know if we use gain today. It's been a long time since I've been in the laundry room, but... I was pouring out of a game box and money fell out of it. That felt to me a little bit like Peter fishing and getting a gold coin out of somebody's mouth. Somebody had put money in that game box for me. Now, I got to thinking, how would they ever know I'd even find that? And what an unlikely place to put it for Eric. You should have put it in a burrito. <laughs> you, you should have put it at the all-you-can-eat buffet. I'd, I'd have found it there. At the game box. You know, I, I don't know. Another time, I dropped my keys outside of a coffee house. I bent down to get my keys and happened to glance under my seat. Somebody put $100 under my seat. Who does that kind of stuff? People that are motivated by the same Spirit that wrote these words in the Levitical law. Is this not grace? You could call this gleanings of grace if you wanted to. Get out of your mind that the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment and a God of wrath. His law taught His righteousness. What brought wrath was people's inability to keep it. All Scripture is useful for correction, teaching, rebuking, training in righteousness. Christians, if you owned a field, how many of you would leave gleanings in case somebody happened to come by? Okay, well, you're not farmers. How many of you set aside a portion of your income for no other reason then if you meet somebody fatherless, widowless, or an alien, stranger. How many of you do that? Oh, well, I tithe. (laughs) They also tithed. That was something on top of this. Do you understand what I'm getting at? The law taught about God's heart. God's heart was to provide for people that were in need, to show His goodness to people that needed it. He said, but these people are foreigners. They're without God. Well, so were you at one time. Say, oh, they're punished because they left Israel and went there and you were outside of the community of God at one time. So if I give that guy money, he'll probably spend it on beer. Have you never enjoyed a beer in your life? 
said, no, we don't drink. You ever eat a drunk chicken? <laughs> ever barbecue? You, you never had spaghetti sauce with some kind of red wine in it? Come on, guys. Let's get off our religious high horse. Well, I don't know what he'll do with it. If you had been in Old Testament Israel learning about the righteous precepts of God, you know what you would do with your great sacrifice? You wouldn't get a report from the denominational headquarters that said how it was spent. You would watch it be burned in the flames and ascend to God. How would you like to take something that could have fed your children and watched it burned up and said it was for God? Well, I'll give, but I've got to know what they do with it. Somebody gave me $20 one time. 20 bucks. I was just forming a church. 20 bucks. And then retorted to their wife. I don't know if we should have done that. Eric's interested in motorcycles. What if he uses that to buy a motorcycle? I couldn't run to that offering box fast enough to get the 20 bucks out and took everything I could not to shove it down his throat. I was pouring out my life for them. Pouring out my time. He, the guy had no idea. I spent more than 20 bucks on the refreshments that they ate twice a week. People, we've been too self-centered too long. It's time to leave gleanings in the field for other people. It's time to think about the widow and the orphan because that's what God's eyes are on. So Ruth, in any case, goes out for these gleanings of grace because in Israel... This was a commandment. By the way, James 2.15 that I quote all the time that says, you know, what good is your religion if you don't take care of the needs, the physical needs of people? You know, and says, I'll show you my faith by what I do. What do you think motivated that? James died an observant, practicing Jew. What do you think motivated him to write those words? Israel had been commanded to do these things. When they ate the Passover meal, they walked out and said, if anybody needs to come into a house to eat Passover because you don't have your own house, come into mine. If you did that, you'd make sure you were in the right area of town. That the people were the same color that you were. That they wore nice clothes. That they didn't stink. All of those things. That's not where God's heart is. God's heart's in the ones that don't look like you. The ones that don't have what you have. The ones that won't invite you over to repay the favor. Oh, maybe that's where Jesus got that idea. Hmm. You'll find out everything in the New Testament has a root in the Old. Part of our mission will be to teach that. Okay, so she goes out gleaning in the field. Go back to Ruth. Y'all still awake? Yeah. Anybody mad at me yet? No. Okay, well, I'll keep working at that. <laughs> All right, Joshua judges, and then Ruth. Ruth's such a small book, I keep going from Judges to Samuel. All right, Ruth. Uh, the second chapter, and starting in verse 3. Uh, Naomi, Naomi, <laughs> Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Imelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, Whose young woman is that? Now, isn't this interesting? A famine takes a Jewish family all the way to Moab where Jews are not supposed to go. <laughs> then, death, destruction, causes 
Jewish family, what's left of them, to go all the way back to Bethlehem, the house of bread, where the Lord's providing for His people. And there happens to be a Moabitess, somebody outside of the nation of Israel, a foreign bride, a Gentile, there. And it just says, as it so happened, (laughs) she was in the field belonging to Boaz. And then Boaz just happened to show up. And then, out of all the people working in the field that she happened to be in, out of the whole nation of Israel, she happened to be in this man's field, and out of all the fields he owned, he just happened to show up at that field. And then out of all the people working out of there, he just happened to notice that young woman. In my experience, there's no such thing as happenstance. Act 17 teaches us, teaches us, that God determined the times and places that men would live. He set boundaries for us so that we would reach out and find Him, though He's not far from each one of us. What I see here is I see God using famine to get people to go out and reach the Moabites. Then using death and destruction and bad things to get them to leave the Moabite country with a few in tow to go taste of the goodness of Israel. So, well, why would God do that? Because He doesn't desire that anybody would be lost. He cares about them all. He will leave you the 99 to go get the one stray. Stephen was with an evangelist recently and was excited and I could hear it in his voice. And he said, Brother, brother, the devil's stolen our sheep. Brother, brother, it's like a bear or a lion has run off with one of our sheep. We need to go strike it down and get that sheep and bring it back. That's the heart of a Christian. That's the heart of a Christian. That's why David was said to have a heart after God. It's not the one that's nice, neat, dressed, and right here in easy and is willing and wanting to follow you. It's the one that is being beaten up by the demonic forces of alcohol and cocaine and whatever else it could be. Maybe it's just that they have an empty way of life. Everything looks good on the outside, but when they go home, they're sad. Naomi knew the goodness of God. But bitterness was setting in because all she could see around her was destruction. Isn't that wild? Can you not relate to that at all? Have you ever felt like a failure in your Christian walk? Have you never set out to move the mountain and get moved by the mountain? Do you ever step out of the boat to walk on the water and found the water over your head? And you looked for a hand from your Christian brothers and instead they said, I told you not to step out of the boat. Ah, you said that was God. We knew it wasn't God. Well, you are so very smart and I'm so very stupid. You know? First thing that happens if somebody stands up, if David's in a wheelchair and I run over there and say, David, the Lord God says, get up. The decision that's going on in everybody else's mind is, is this God or is this not God? You know? That's the decision going on in everybody's mind. And then if David doesn't get out of that wheelchair first, I knew that wasn't God. Well, you are so very smart. God bless you. Maybe it would have been God if you had got off your butt and come over there and prayed with me too. He's a preacher. He can't say that. I can assure you we can say that. Paul called people mutilators of the flesh and dogs and brute beasts. Look up that translation sometimes, Bible scholars. Brute beast. Look that one up. You'll, You'll enjoy that. King James Bible, you cannot read that to a kid. Okay. So, he happened to be in the field. In other words, this, as it turned out, happens to be a divine appointment. The God of Israel had seen the suffering of Naomi and the faithfulness of Ruth. And He orchestrated the events in their lives. 
The Bible teaches that He's working actively to orchestrate the events of our lives. And that His goal is that we will reach out and find Him. That's His goal. Now, something we're going to skip over here is as she's gleaning and Boaz notices her, he goes over and he talks to her and says, Look, sweetheart, you can continue to glean here. Nobody's going to bother you. But glean in this field. Don't go glean in the other fields. I don't want anybody to harm you. Why would Boaz have to say that? All Israel received the same law. All Israel was told, you leave gleanings in your field for the widows and for the aliens. Why would Boaz have to tell her, don't glean in any other field? Israel was just like the church. Only a small percentage of them took God's Word seriously. The rest just took it in robe and ritual. Most people that go to church, most people who claim to be Christians never take it seriously. They've bought fire insurance. They've pacified their conscience. They look good in their Sunday suits and brag that they've gone to church since they were little kids, but they do not do the will of God. I was in that crowd, I know. I got saved with the words, you cannot walk in darkness and say you have fellowship with the Father. You're a liar. I got saved with the words, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom, but only... He who does the will of God. Boaz was very well aware that even among the community of the Israelites who were under penalty from God if they did not do God's work, that many wouldn't do it. So he said, sweetie, stay here, please. Now you can say, well, that's because he had his eye on her. Maybe that's true. But there's indications later in the book that he never dreamed that a young, beautiful woman like this would find interest in him. I know what that's like. I married way out of my class, too. (laughs) All right. Uh, Ruth 2, starting in verse 10. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground and exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you have noticed me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you have left your father and mother in your homeland and have come to live with my people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Praise God for that sentence. Let me tell you first, why did Boaz help her? Was it because he thought she was a fox? No, you're going to find out later, even though she was a young, beautiful woman, he never dreamed she'd be interested in him. You know why he helped her? Because he heard that she was somebody that God would want to bless. Now, how did he know that? It was because of the faithfulness earlier. Where you go, I will go. Where your people are will be my people. Nothing will ever separate us but death. You know what? If you're a Christian, let's just start there. Let's start with the Christians because... Judgment is supposed to begin with the house of God and then move to the lost. So let's just start with Christians. If you are in desperate trouble, if you're having a hard time making ends meet, if things are not going well for you, and the church doesn't rush in to help you, there's two possibilities that you need to consider very strongly. One is you're in the wrong church and they just don't know how Christianity is supposed to work. The second one is, they've not seen faithfulness in your life and they're scared to bless something that God's not blessing. I've lived long enough to see both. I've seen people I had the ability to help and God said, do not do it. You know why? 
There are people that will just pour out God's resources without ever a thought as to where they came from. Someone else will be sacrificing and burdened so that somebody else has and they don't care, don't appreciate it, and don't glorify God, just look for the next handout. We live in an entitlement society. Boaz saw in this woman a faithfulness, a loyalty. She didn't send Naomi out into the fields to work. She didn't even ask that she go with her. She went out in the fields to work to support Naomi. She had nothing to gain from it. She had not a thing in the world to gain from it. Naomi certainly wasn't going to give her a husband. Naomi didn't have anything left. She was empty. When you help those that are empty without a thought of what you'll receive in return, the God of Israel is looking at your faithfulness, looking for the opportunity to bless you. He's looking for that opportunity. He's look- when the Bible says, My Father seeks those who will worship in spirit and in truth, and the charismatic church goes, Oh yeah, that's talking about singing in tongues. Oh yeah, that's talking about lively charismatic praise and worship. You're wrong. It's talking about living a life of obedience and sacrifice. Romans 12 teaches your spiritual act of worship. Got that? Spiritual act of worship is to submit the members of your body to Christ. Not because you speak in tongues or prophesy or saw gold dust or bark like a dog or anything else that we do in the crazy charismatic zoo. Your spiritual act of worship, worshiping in spirit and truth, is being wholly committed to Jesus in spirit, in mind, and in body. And when He sees that, He will bless it. And you know what's so funny? You won't care whether He does or not because when you get into the heart of God, you're excited to help people. Not because they deserve it. I can assure you, many people that this church has already helped do not deserve it. But God gives you what you need. He does not give you what you deserve. We serve the God that approached ten lepers and healed them because He knew after He touched them they wouldn't be lepers anymore. I love the story of Les Miserables. I love it. And I hate musicals. (laughs) You can't tie me down and make me watch Sound of Music the 700 times that my wife watches it. But Les Miserables found a place in my heart for one reason. This guy was a thief, Jean Valjean, and a crook. And he beat up this man that he was staying in his house and robbed him. And when he was caught and brought back, the constables got him and says, Hey, this is the man that beat you and robbed you, isn't it? And the owner of the house said, No, no, no. He didn't rob me. He didn't beat me. He's a liar. (laughs) He said, He didn't rob me. He didn't beat me. He said, In fact, Jean Valjean, you forgot some of this silver that I have here. He went and got the last little bit of his belongings that were silver coins, handed it to Jean Valjean and whispered in his ear, This day I purchase you for the Lord. Leave your life of sin. See, the Gospels advanced when people who don't deserve it receive mercy. And that mercy is life-changing. It's powerful. I got saved when I realized I was hostile to God and He showed me mercy. I got saved when I realized I was wrong. He was right and I needed to change. If you got saved because you realized how right you were always, you didn't get saved. I need to baptize you again. Hold you under the water a little longer. <laughs> All right. Ruth 2, verses 10 through 12 says, Why am I being shown this kindness as a foreigner? Disaster is bound to visit us all. But where we take refuge determines how we will weather the storm. Where did 
Where did Boaz say she would find refuge? Let's see how he says. Verse 12, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge? Lord, what on earth is that about? God's a bird? <laughs> now i got the 1980 song in my head. Well, I will leave that alone. Okay. Is God a bird? What do you mean feathers? Turn with me to Psalm 91. Psalms is in the middle of your Bible. If you never memorized a psalm before, that's okay. I never have set out to memorize Scripture. It just happens when you read it enough. But if you ever wanted to memorize one, here's one that is good to know in dark places. Okay? Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I was one time goose hunting. I guess ducks and geese. With my stepfather. Really kind thing he did for me. He took me out in a boat ride with some other people. I was about Judah's age. Had a gun way too big for me. Out there to shoot ducks. You know, it was a bonding thing. While we were in the boat, I was just ingratiated in every way. Thankful for something. See, that morning it was about 20 degrees. And on the water, it was very cold. And the Lord appointed a giant fat man who sat in the front of the boat. And I huddled in his shadow, if you will. And he was a windbreak for me. And the only thing kept me from... It was so cold, even the dog's teeth were chattering. Okay? You ever seen a dog's teeth chatter? <laughs> you know, it's hilarious. Poor thing had to jump in the water and go get the ducks. This is a little bit like God. When you dwell up close to Him, He takes the brunt of the storm. He takes the harshness of the sun so that it won't smite you by day or the moon by night. He'll preserve your going in and your coming out. See, I huddled right up next to that guy in the front. The great big fat guy was not my stepdad, by the way. And it broke some of the harshness of what we were enduring. Dwelling in the shadow of God, the Almighty, is like that. Turn with me back to Numbers 15. You'd have liked that example. I'm glad you approve of my preaching, boy. I have a feeling one day I'll sit and listen to you preach. In Numbers 15, you know in Numbers 15? Verse 38. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garment with blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at so that you will remember all of the Lord's commands, or all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by going after the lust of your own hearts and eyes. The Hebrews were graphic, weren't they? If you did something other than what God commanded you, He considered that like prostitution. Why? He'd paid a price for you to keep you for Himself. And there you are running after someone else. He called it prostitution. Then you will remember to obey all My commands and will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. 
God had every Jew, every Jew, put on the corner of their garments tassels like those over there on the wall called zitzit. In fact, they began to tie knots in them, 613 of them, because there were 16, 613 mitzvahs or commands in the Bible. So when a Jew envisioned God, when they envisioned Him or thought about Him, they thought about Him wearing that garment. You know why? He told them to wear it. We always have done that kind of thing with God. We view Him in our image instead of us in His image. But when the Bible says, may He take you under the shelter of His wings, this is Hebrew imagery. It's speaking of the way a hen or a mother would cover up her babies. You remember Jesus said outside Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. It's speaking of the way a bird will cup its wings around its chicks to protect them and be a windbreak for them, to be shelter for them. And when they pictured God, they pictured these tassels on a garment surrounding them so that it looked like feathers or wings. Does that make sense? Well, that brings a whole new light to some other stories that we'll get to in just a minute. (coughs) Ruth 2.20 Previous point was, why am I being shown kindness? And this for, uh, I'm a foreigner. Disaster is bound to visit us all, but where we take refuge determines how we will weather the storm. Now in Ruth 2.20, which I have to get to, Judges, Ruth, we see this verse. The Lord bless him, said, uh, let's see, hold on. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, He has not stopped showing His kindness to the living and the dead. She added, That man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen, redeemers. The guy that just happened to be out in the field and whose field Ruth just happened to belong in, who she was noticed among the many other people that were there, happened to be in the same family clan and tribe as Naomi's husband. This meant, according to the law, that somebody had the right and indeed the responsibility to marry her and take care of this family. You would inherit the brother's land. You would bear children for him in his stead or in his name because every family was supposed to survive in Israel. Every uh, ancestral land was supposed to stay within the ancestry. So, the appearance of a kinsman redeemer happens. Naomi's previous emptiness is being displaced by hope in something. See, Naomi's not had any hope after ten years in the foreign land. She had lost her husband, her two sons, one daughter-in-law. Now she's come back totally destitute. Come back impoverished and is gleaning in the fields or having her daughter glean in the fields. She has no hope. And then something appears a kinsman redeemer. The hope of redemption in her life begins to start to fill that void. Let me read you a couple psalms because we're running out of time. Psalm 9, verse 18. But the needy will not always be forgotten, nor will the hope of the afflicted ever perish. God has promised if you're in need, He will meet your need. Psalm 25, verse 3. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. But they will be put to shame who are treacherous without excuse. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in truth and teach me. For you, God, are my Savior and my hope is in you all day long. 
verse, chapter 25, verse 21. May integrity and uprightness protect me because my hope is in you. Now this is one of my favorites, so listen to this one closely. Psalm 33, verse 18. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him, on those whose hope is in His unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. If you hope in God, He's watching you to see where your hope is placed. And He can keep you alive when there is no food. If He has to, He'll rain it down from heaven or have the Ravens Federal Express program fly it in for you. We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In Him, our hearts rejoice, for we trust in His holy name. May Your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in You. It's those kind of words that inspired Paul to write Romans 15. Romans 15, verse 13 says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust or faith in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God allows there to be an emptiness in your life at times so you can be filled with something. The entire 8th chapter of Romans talks about this hope. This hope is throughout the Bible. You can choose to be filled with bitterness because of your circumstances. Or you can choose to let the bitterness be displaced by hope. Something rises up in Naomi's heart and begins to spur actions. Ruth's faithfulness to her has provided an opportunity. God's used that faithfulness to give Naomi new hope. There's a Redeemer He might choose us. There's a Redeemer who might choose to redeem us. Look at Ruth chapter 3, verse 7. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down in the middle of the night. Something startled the man. And he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are my kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Now, to us, this could look almost like something nasty, dirty, huh? They're not married and she goes and lays down at his feet and he throws a blanket over? Lord, what on earth's happening here? Why would that be in the Bible? <laughs> okay, that's just my juvenile mind, I guess. But when you look at the Hebrew culture, it's the same idea of being in the shadow of his wings. If he had the corner of a garment, what did God say had to be on the corners of that garment? Four tassels. This is the zitzit. These had the 613 commands tied in knots on them, symbolizing the way that God wants you to act and the authority that God gave you. And when she laid at His feet, what she's doing is she's saying, I submit to your covering. I believe that you're a man of God and I'm willing to learn from, be benefited by and protected by the covering that God gave you. Would you spread your garment over me? She came into His covering. She joined His household that very day. I said, well, why do we go through all of that? You remember in the Gospel of Luke, a woman with an issue of blood grabbed what the New Testament Greek calls the hem of a garment? You know what the woman was doing? Jesus wore these tassels because He was a Jew and He was obedient to the law. And Numbers 15 said they all had to do it. She had not been able to get well her whole life. The law also demanded 
that she not bump into anybody because she had the issue of blood and she was ceremonially unclean and if she bumped into somebody, they were unclean. The crowd was so thick that they felt like they were going to be crushed, the Bible says. And yet this woman went out into that crowd risking punishment for defiling the people around her because she knew if she could come under the covering of the Messiah, her kinsman, Redeemer, that His authority, His covering would extend over her and she would be blessed. She got healed the moment she touched Him. That's what that means. That's what that was after. That's what that teaching is all about. But y'all want to know the rest of this, right? Let me tell you one more thing though. Zechariah 8, verse 23, teaches us that there will be a time when ten Gentiles like us will go and grab one Jew by the corners of his garment. Alright, so we're talking about the same Zizi. Say, teach us about God. There is a time coming when God will restore the fortunes of Israel so that it's not just one kinsman redeemer like Boaz or one Messiah like Jesus, but His anointing is on the nation so that others will come and grab them by the tassels and say, teach us about God. That also tells you something about this grace law that we're learning about. It extends even to the returning of Christ. It's not done away with. It's not perished. But that's a whole other message and I only have a few minutes. Okay, Ruth 4. Boaz marries Ruth. There is one other kinsman redeemer, interestingly enough, and he's nameless in the Bible. And Boaz goes out and pays a great price to redeem Ruth and Naomi. He has to buy all of the ancestral lands away from this other kinsman redeemer who was next in line. Then he has to provide for Naomi and Ruth all the days of their life. So at great price, this foreign Moabitess woman, because of her faithfulness, was purchased. Does that sound like anything you know? You were Gentiles, foreign to God, and at great price He purchased you for Himself. You've been joined in by a kinsman redeemer. Verse 12 of chapter 4. Through the offspring the Lord gives you... These are people speaking to Naomi uh, and Ruth. Through, through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman... I'm sorry, speaking to Naomi. May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. That was another strange situation in the Bible where one man stood in the stead for another and bore a family. And that family went on to do great. And so what the women are telling Naomi is, wow, may you be like the family of Perez. Your husband died and your sons died, but now somebody's standing in in their stead and you will bear offspring and may your family line be blessed. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. That's interesting, isn't it? Boaz was a kinsman redeemer to Ruth. Why? Because he purchased the rights to marry her and took care of her. This child that would be born to Ruth was a kinsman redeemer to Naomi. Why? Her family line never died. In fact, she had a chance to bring forth the Messiah in a manner of speaking. She who was empty is fixing to be found very, very full. What was the hope of every woman from Eve forward? That they might birth the living one. Watch what happens. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son. Not really her son. It's her grandson. But... And they named him Obed. 
He was the father of Jesse, the father of David, King David, from whom Jesus descended. Do you realize that if there had not been a famine, if there had not been the death of Imelech, the death of Mechlon, of Kilion, if those things had not happened, King David never would have come into this world. Not only would King David not have come in this world, Jesus would not have come into this world. Can God use famine and death and devastation and get this, a Moabitess to bring about something good? I assure you He can. We serve the God that will take your broken dreams. Isaiah 61 says, He will give you beautiful things for your ashes. When you come to Him and say, Lord, my life is a wreck. I've screwed it up badly. My husband's dead. My sons are dead. I'm in the land of a foreign God. He will give you something beautiful if you're not filled with bitterness, but will be filled with hope in Him. So why are we here during this time period? There are people who are on the fence that are going to be filled with something. They're going to be filled with something. Already you hear hate for the government. Hate for the local officials. Hate for people that are a different color. They're being filled with something. It's our job to help them be filled with hope so that God can do something good out of what has happened that seems bad in their lives. This is how Jesus got here. In fact, when you look at His family line, you find several Gentile women, a rape and a prostitute. Isn't that interesting? God takes the corrupted things of the world and recycles them and does something beautiful. That ought to give you hope. gives me hope. Boaz paid a great price for Ruth. And Ruth got restored because of her faithfulness. And Naomi got restored because her hope was in the right place. Isaiah 61 is what Jesus quoted to begin His ministry. We're closing here. But Isaiah 61 speaks of throwing off a garment of despair and taking up a garment of praise. You want to know what should our response be to Katrina? Eric preached about Joseph's storehouse and we're doing that. We're storing up things. We're giving of ourselves financially. We're giving in every way that we know how to give. But what should our response to be? Did this come upon them because of God's judgment? Did it come upon them because they were bad? No, it came upon them so you would have the opportunity to fill their emptiness with hope. And God will birth out of it people like David and people like Jesus and the world will change. Don't look at this as an opportunity to, for doom and gloom. It's an opportunity for hope and faithfulness to overcome despair. It's an opportunity for the ashes to become something beautiful. And it only happens if people like Boaz do what the Word says. Boaz said, don't go to another field. He had no confidence in his brethren that they would do what they were supposed to do. And God ordained that it come to his field. When you are out in Houston, when you're in your business communities and coming across the lives of people, it didn't just happen to be. God didn't bring somebody from New Orleans to Houston and you just happen to run into them. These are divine appointments. And God's counting on you to do what the Word says. Care for the widows, the orphans, the fatherless. Leave gleanings in the field. Fill their life with hope rather than bitterness. And in doing this, you fulfill the royal law of love. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. In doing this, you fulfill the law. 
and the law speaks of doing that. Stand up, let's pray.